Well, it is good to be here today. Uh, I am grateful for this church. I've only worshipped with you one time, uh, but I'm glad to be with you today, and uh, we pray for you. Uh, we are so grateful for you. Uh, you've been a church of many people I love, so thank you for having me today. Let's pray as we look at God's Word. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would uh, draw our hearts to Jesus. I pray your spirit would illumine your word. I pray that you would open up to us the truths that are in your word, that you would give us hearts to hear and obey. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the date was May the 1st, 2015. A group of people boarded the Lusitania in New York. They were headed for Liverpool, England. There were 2,000 people on board, including 95 children and 39 infants. And it was an amazing ship. People expected uh, just a luxury as they crossed the Atlantic. Comfortable, luxurious, and uh, first class. But as you might know, this voyage was to be its last. A few days before uh, people boarded that ship, the German embassy in New York had taken out an ad in 50 American newspapers, including this one in New York. Notice, travelers intending to embark on Atlantic voyages are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies. And it went on to describe that one of their, Germany's enemies was Great Britain, and went on to say that a zone of war included the waters adjacent to the British Isles, and then it said this, in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of its allies are liable to destruction in those waters. And the travelers sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain and our allies do so at great risk. Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., 22nd of April, 1915. I don't know how you would have reacted when you read that ad, but surprisingly, people still got on that ship. If you go on YouTube, you can still watch the uh, film clip of people in New York boarding the uh, plank there, going up the ramp. Uh, of course, you know the scene as a boat leaves the harbor, and there's ticker tape, and everyone's all excited. They, were, they went to their first-class cabins. Uh, some of them went to the dining room, enjoyed the food and all the amenities the ship had to offer. Well, on May 7th, Near the end of that journey, a German U-boat spotted the ship. At a 700-meter range, orders were given for one torpedo to be fired. That single torpedo hit the ship. Seawater drenched the passengers. Children were jumping rope on the deck. They stopped jumping. Within seconds, the ship rolled to the right. 18 minutes later, the ship sank, killing almost 1,200 of its passengers and crew. Never before had an attack on a civilian ship taken place like this. But when you enter a war zone, even when you're on a luxurious civilian ship, you might experience the worst, the worst that war has to offer. Friends, today, uh, the message I have for you is a little bit of an uncomfortable one for us. You and I are in a very similar position Many of us live in nice places. I woke up today in my condo. Uh, we opened the door. We had a coffee. My wife and I sat on the couch. Uh, we looked out the window. We saw signs of spring. It was wonderful. But I, I'm here to tell you today, despite 
what you're going through, the car you drove here, the place where you live, a declaration of war has been issued. We have been told to expect attack. And yet, if you're like me, you are surprised. It's almost like we think we live in peacetime conditions. And we're surprised when we find ourselves embattled and attacked. I don't know how many times I've experienced the attacks of the evil one, and my reaction has been shock. Where did that come from? I thought that things were good. We live in wartime, and yet we expect peacetime conditions. A number of years ago, my wife and I went through the hardest year of my life. If she were here, she'd tell you, whenever I say it was a hard year, she would correct me and say, Daryl, it was a hard four years. Like, it was not. It was the most brutal time of our lives. And uh, one day I was reading a, a Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon, and I read these words by him. He said this, When you sleep, remember that you are resting on the battlefield. When you travel, suspect an ambush at every hedge. And that just helped me so much. When you sleep, remember that you are sleeping on the battlefield. You know, when you wake up and there's bombs going off all around, Spurgeon's saying, don't be surprised. What did you expect? Of course, like a soldier in World War I on the battlefield, uh, waking up in the foxhole is not surprised to wake up and hearing bombs go off. And Spurgeon is saying, don't be surprised. We're at war. Do not be surprised when you experience wartime conditions. And that's why I want to look at the passage that we're looking at today. I want to look at what it means not just to survive the battle, but to take our stand. Uh, the next three weeks, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6, uh, 10 to 20. Today, we're just going to look at the first few verses. I want to set the scene for these next few weeks. Uh, today, I want to paint three realities, I think, that we need to learn from this passage that are going to help all of us as we live our lives here in wartime conditions. So here's uh, just three simple truths from the first part of this passage uh, let me just describe them to you, apply them to you today. Here's a reality, number one, that you have to realize. Reality number one is this. We are engaged in deadly spiritual warfare. We are engaged in deadly spiritual warfare. We read the verses uh, 10 to 13, where Paul says uh, near the end of his letter to the Ephesians, an amazing letter, a letter that unfolds the riches of the gospel and he ends with this sobering passage. He says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then he turns to us and says, arm up, arm up. And then he actually goes on to describe why we need to arm up. He says uh, that we need to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says this, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But he begins to describe our opposition. He says, we are at war. So here's the first thing we need to see. The Christian life is a battle. If you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, you're not sure uh, what, you know, and, and maybe you're expecting to go to a church where the preacher is going to get up and say, turn to Christ, all your problems will be over, you will live the good life. You know, you came to the wrong service today. <laughs> I'm sorry, the Christian life is a battle. Some people think the Christian life is peaceful. Some people think that if you're experiencing uh, trouble in your life, that it's a sign that something is wrong with your life. I know people who believe that if you're experiencing hardship in your life, it's a sign of lack of faith. Well, Paul corrects all of that here and says, listen to what the Christian life is like. It, you are at war. It is a battle. You are entering wartime conditions. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you enlist as a soldier 
in that war. You're going to battle. And Paul uses this extended military metaphor to help us understand what the Christian life is like. The whole reason we need armor is because we are deeply engaged in a deadly spiritual battle. We are taking the side of God in this ongoing war that began in Genesis 3 against God, between God and the devil. We are declaring our allegiance with the victor, but we are at war. Here's what we learn about the battle. Verse 11 says, we have enemies. Verse 11 talks about the schemes of the devil. Uh, If you are uh, here today, you need to understand, well, you are here today. I don't have to say if you're here, you're here. (laughs) I find that we forget this. I find that I forget this quite often. We have a spiritual enemy. We believe this, but we forget this. He is the devil. Jesus called him a liar and a murderer. If you think about this, uh, it tells us uh, both his means and his goal, right? Uh, He is a liar. Uh, We're going to see this is his primary weapon that he uses. But his goal is to rob us, uh, to ultimately to kill us. He is a murderer. He is out. His uh, he is out to destroy your life, and he's not alone. Verse twelve goes on to say that he's joined by rulers against. uh, the authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what Paul's telling us, uh, we're not going to go into depth about each of these and what they mean, but what he's saying here, I think is enough to recognize that we don't have just one spiritual being who's our enemy, but he has forces that are aligned with us. There's a whole range of evil supernatural forces. They vary in rank, authority, and capability, but they are all opposed to us. Friends, there's a spiritual reality that we don't see. There's a battle going on in this world in which the spiritual, in the spiritual realm, the demonic realm plays an active role against us. We don't have every detail about how this works. It is enough to know that as creatures on this earth, there's more going on than meets the eye. There's a battle going on with unseen spiritual forces against us. And what the Bible teaches is that they're powerful, they're wicked, they're cunning, and they're invisible. If our fight were against other human beings, we'd probably have to worry, but at least we had it, we'd have a chance. The reality is against these unseen spiritual forces, we have no chance on our own. We do not have what it takes to withstand them. And that's why Paul is writing to them, because Paul is giving them instruction first on the reality of this battle, and then he's telling them what they need to do to prepare for this battle. But it's enough to say, you have an enemy. Uh, If you are under attack, there's somebody who wants to destroy you. His agenda is to kill you. Don't be surprised when you're under attack. The next thing Paul tells us, not only do we have enemies, uh, the reality of the enemy, but he goes on to say, they have tactics. Paul tells us we're to stand against the schemes of the devil. What is a scheme? A scheme is a strategy designed by a careful strategist to defeat us. Uh, it's not usually a compliment if somebody says, uh, you, you know, somebody's been scheming, right? What it means is somebody's coming up with a diabolical plan. They're putting uh, work into it. 
Uh, hopefully, maybe it's a birthday party. They're scheming to throw you a surprise birthday party. I don't know. But in this case, uh, Paul is saying, you have an enemy, and he has schemes. He has been honing his techniques for a millennia. He is looking for any way. He has an agenda to achieve the goal of the destruction of your soul. One preacher says this, and by the way, we're, this is the... Uh, this is the worst part of the three weeks I'm going to talk about. So if you don't like what I'm saying, number one, like you're thinking correctly because this is really uncomfortable, but it's going to get better. I'll just say that. But here's what one preacher says. He has been honing his millennia, uh, his methods for millennia. This is uh, the evil one. His emissaries visited the church councils at Nicaea and, and Chalcedon. He sat in on medieval faculty meetings. He is, our enemy is, an accomplished philosopher, theologian, and psychologist. He has had thousands of years to study. And then the Kent Hughes is the one who said this. He says, hey guys, I'm no genius at math, but if I had 100 years to study math, I could become pretty good at math. If I had 1,000 years, I could probably, with 1,000 years, become at the level of a Newton or an Einstein. And then he says this, what if I had 10,000 years? Given all of this, any of us could become the world's greatest philosopher or psychologist or theologian or linguist. We could curse or preach in a thousand languages. And then he says that we could do that with 10,000 years. And then he concludes this, he says, Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master the human disciplines. And when it comes to human subversion, he is the ultimate manipulator. Friends, we are going up against uh, one who has studied for millennia. He knows us very well. He knows exactly how humans work. Uh, he, he's honed his techniques over many years. He has schemes. He has very effective schemes. What are these schemes? You know, I remember that, I don't recommend this, by the way. I remember somebody one time watching, uh, saying, hey, do you want to watch this movie? My parents were away. So it was one of those awful things. And it was one of those, I think it was Exorcist, and I watched it, and yeah, I think I developed this picture of, like, how does Satan work? Well, it's going to be, like, you know, the lights are going to flicker, you know, and somebody's going to start foaming. You know, it's going to be all this weird stuff, right? <laughs> how does Satan work? When you look at Scripture, how does Satan work? Well, let me just give you some of the ways. Um, interjecting an image into our minds of something enticing but sinful. Matthew 4, 8 to 10, or Luke 4, 5 to 8, tempting us. Um, how does Satan work? Another example is exploiting a sinful tendency, such as anger, or causing uh, one of our besetting sins to really ensnare us and flare out of control, Ephesians 4.27. How does Satan work? He inspires people to teach false doctrine, uh, an idea that sounds plausible but is wrong and actually dangerous to our souls. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 3 and 15. Uh, Satan can work by afflicting us with a physical illness or condition. Uh, a thorn in the flesh, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, Satan can work by sending a horrible dream or demonic manifestation during the night that produces fear, uh, Job 4 or Psalm 91. Satan can entice us to lie, Acts 5, 3. Uh, Satan can, within God's sovereignty, instigate a series of horrible natural calamities, uh, the death of a loved one, the loss of one's home, the destruction or loss of property, Job 1, 2 and 2. You know, the 
overall, because I think all of us are thinking, how does Satan work? Satan's going to work by doing really weird, like, this is how Satan's primary, his primary scheme, his primary tactic against us is deceit. His primary weapon is to get us to think wrongly about God. That's his primary tactic. Uh, Satan isn't probably going to go into your home and make the lights flicker at night. Uh, he's not going to make it like a, the door slam and for you to go like, you're gonna hear, not going to hear doorsteps going down. You know what he's going to do? He's going to get you to believe falsehood about God. He's going to uh, tell you lies. He's going to bring people into your life who are going to teach you something that sounds good but questions the goodness of God. Usually Satan's tactics are, are subtle. That's why they're so dangerous. Satan doesn't tip his hand. He doesn't say, hey, it's Satan here. I'm going to deceive you. He likes to use trickery and subterfuge. As one person says, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It's a baited and camouflaged trap. Friends, I've looked around as I've seen in my own life. How does Satan, what are Satan's schemes? Satan's schemes are to get me to question the goodness of God. It's to make sin look really good. It's to cause me to begin to neglect my devotion to God. To, uh, Satan's lies are to get me to believe that the world, what the world says is true, that my identity is found in, in being true to myself, of living my desires, of expressing who I am, of looking within rather than to Christ for meaning. That's how Satan, that's, that's Satan's scheme. Satan works in many ways. But what his most effective tactic is simply to get us to love sin and to hate the goodness of God. He tries to tempt us to think that God is holding back on us. He gets us to question God's word. He knows what works. His toolkit is very effective. He doesn't have many tools. He's gotten rid of the ones he doesn't need. The tools he has are very effective, and he's been at it for thousands of years. We have an enemy, Paul says, and he has tactics. One man reflect, reflects on the battle he faced, and he says this, I was a fool. I believed lies, which meant, led me to tell lies. That is why temptation is so tempting. It's insane how quickly it becomes rational and reasonable to believe and do destructive and evil things. I think that puts it well. Uh, it's very easy to believe lies, which leads to telling ourselves lies and other lies. And it becomes rational and reasonable to believe and do destructive and evil things. Uh, again, as Jesus said, Satan is a liar and deceiver. His main tactic is deceit. One more thing about the battle. Uh, we're at war. Uh, we have enemies. Satan has tactics. Uh, one more thing I want to notice. The battle is up close and personal. Paul says we wrestle. I wish that it was like, uh, I mean, Paul couldn't have said this because it didn't exist then, but I wish it would have been like, um, we don't wrestle. We're, we've like employed drone warfare, right? I'm sitting in my living room in Toronto at a joystick, and across the world is this drone going to battle. That's not what Paul said. Of course, he couldn't have said that. <laughs> what he's saying is, we wrestle. What is wrestling? When you're wrestling, you're in close contact with your enemy. This isn't a warfare that takes place from a distance. This is a close and intense warfare. It takes place in our minds and our hearts. It couldn't be closer and more intimate than it is. We're at war. We have enemies who have tactics. The war is up close and personal. It's in your heart. We can't be like the passengers on the Lusitania. We must remember that we're at war. 
Second thing that Paul tells us in this passage, we're at war. Here's what we should do. Be strong by putting on the armor of God. What do we do about this? Paul says, be strong by putting on the armor of God. Uh, By the way, I've been talking a lot about uh, Satan this morning. One of the temptations about talking about Satan is we become overly focused on him. Uh, And that can draw us away, ironically, from being focused on Christ. We need to acknowledge the reality of the spiritual warfare we're in. I love what C.S. Lewis said, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall. One is to disbelieve the spiritual realm, and the other is actually to become excessively interested in them. And Satan is actually happy with both. He loves us to either ignore him or to become focused on him. I love what Paul does in this passage because he reminds us of the battle that we're in. He reminds us of our enemy, but he doesn't dwell there. That's not the emphasis in this passage. He acknowledges the reality, but he wants us to know it. But then he says the emphasis is on what we need to do. How should we react to the spiritual warfare we're in? Not by freaking out, not by going, we're doomed, like we're at war, like the, like. None of that. There is no panic in this passage. Here's what we should do, Paul says in verses 10 to 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Pull down the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. How should we react to the spiritual warfare we're we're engaged in? Be strong, he says, in the Lord. I love that he says, in the Lord there. It's not like be strong, Because self-sufficiency is actually a killer in this battle. He says we need to be strong in the Lord. And the whole passage, he's going to unpack the resources that God has given us. We need God's armor. We need, God has plentifully supplied his people for the battle that we're in. And we're going to read that. Uh, The next week I'm going to talk, uh, and the week after I'm going to talk about these things. But I want you to notice a few things here. So first, this is kind of hidden. I missed this at first, and it's so obvious that I think we might tend to miss it. We're not alone in this battle. I was preparing to preach this passage uh, years ago, and uh, I was with a good pastor friend of mine, and he said, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I said, the armor of God. And uh, he said, you know what ticks me off about when preachers preach about the armor of God? And uh, I said, oh, good. I'm glad we're having this conversation now. Uh, What is it that ticks you off? And he says, every preacher I've heard that talks about the armor of God uh, preaches it as if, we're individual Christians who arm up and go to battle. He says, have you ever seen a, a soldier go to battle alone? This is a group. We're at war together, friends. We do not. One of the reasons we're here this morning is because we need each other. We need each other. We, God has designed us to work together. The Christian life is war. It makes no sense to go to battle alone. We need strength and encouragement from others. We need to stand shoulder to shoulder with each other if we're going to survive. We can't do it by ourselves. And so Paul here is writing to the Ephesian church. He's not writing to Ephesian individuals. He's instructing the church collectively to put on God's armor and to stand as one person in battle together. And then he says this, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. You might pick up, it's a little bit hard to see in English, but I think you can pick up in the English. This is passive. We are to receive strength from an outside source. And so Paul is not saying here, make yourself strong. He's actually saying something closer to receive from the Lord what you need in order to be strong. This is, there is something we can do. But what we do is we come to God and present ourselves to him, fulfilling with his power. We receive what we need from him in order for the battle. 
We go to the armory and we go to God and we say, we're ready. Would you give us exactly what we need? And I love when Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Here he's pointing us to what we've sung about so powerfully this morning already. Our only hope is Jesus. As Martin Luther said, did we in our own strength confide, confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. If it's only because Jesus is on our side. It's only because we can be strong in the Lord that we can go to battle. Tim Keller gives the illustration. He says, picture being sent to a battle in which you're vastly outnumbered. You go into that battle and there's not a chance. Like, you know you're creamed. Uh, you don't have what it takes to win that. But the commander says, tomorrow you're going to go. It's going to look hopeless. But remember that as you attack, that behind you, over you and around you will be this vastly superior air power. Charge, but as you look at your fellow soldiers and you look vastly outnumbered, you look like you're going to be slaughtered, remember you won't be alone. If you don't charge, you won't beat them. But if you charge, you need to trust that what I tell you is true, that you have support and then you'll be okay. And that's what Paul is telling us. Uh, we need to come to God trusting not in our power, but in his power. We'd like to see the air power first. That's not how it works. We've got to fill our minds with the magnificence of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in defeating our enemy at the cross. He has won victory over the demonic forces. Satan has no power. He has been defeated. He is in the death throes, but he has been defeated. We've got to fill our minds with the glorious truths that we heard last week, that you are here every week, that Jesus Christ died for us that he won victory at the cross over sin and death, that he rose victorious over the grave, that he stands triumphant ruling over this universe. He is in control. We just remind ourselves that Hebrews 2.14 says that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Colossians 2.15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That Ephesians 2 says, that by grace you have been saved and that he has raised you up and seated you with him in the heavenly places in Christ. We've got to keep coming back to the victory that Jesus has won. Be strong in Jesus. As we go into the week, we're at war. There's gonna be stuff that goes on. Satan is gonna try to defeat you. Jesus has won. And you can be strong in him. Jesus has done everything necessary for us to stand. Every week we come and People at our church is like, what's the sermon about this week? And it, it's like, okay, well, you know, right now we're going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in a year. So it's kind of like, it's kind of exciting, challenging at the same time. But every week I want to say, like, like last week was David. But every week I just want to say the sermon this week is about Jesus. Like, I never want to get tired of that. I just want to keep coming. Like, let's be strong in the Lord. If I'm going to get through another week, thank you for communion this morning. Like, if I'm going to get through another week, it's only, this is, the reason why, because Jesus has died for us. That's our only hope. Be strong in the Lord, major in your life, thinking about what Jesus has accomplished, and it's everything you need. You will never exhaust what he did at the cross for you. He has everything you need. You can draw strength from him continuously. You will never exhaust the riches of the gospel. And one of the things we need to realize is we just got to keep coming back. We'll never outgrow that. We've just got to keep dwelling and strengthening ourselves on that. The only way we can stand in battle is if we actually stay connected to the strength that God provides.
But there's things we can do. We're going to look at that the next few weeks. Uh, I'm not going to get into it too much right now. But uh, it's not just like sit there, think about the cross, and like that's enough, go into battle. It's like, no, next week we're going to talk about actually some things we need to take, uh, steps we need to take in order to arm up. Let me summarize what I've said so far. I've got one more thing to say. We're at war. We have enemies who have tactics. They're up close and personal. But we can be strengthened together by the Lord, by the grace of, of him, the resources that he's provided for us. But final point this morning that I want to leave with you today. Here's the good news, because I've given you a lot of bad news today. The good news is this, we can stand. The good news is we can stand. And Paul, over and over again, as I said, there's no freaking out in this passage. Paul says if we strengthen ourselves in God, if we take up his armor, we will be able to stand against the enemy of our souls. I want you to notice four times how this comes up in the passage. Put on the whole armor of God in verse 11, that you may be able to stand. I don't know if you're the highlighting kind, if you have a Bible, like circle, highlight, like that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand, therefore. Paul is saying, hold your position. Paul is saying, uh, don't let the devil gain an inch in your life. You will not be, as you're trusting Christ through his strength and the resources he gives, you don't need to be moved. Take your stand. When the devil advances, hold your position. By the way, it doesn't mean that you uh, are only playing defense but it means we can take an aggressive stand against Satan. We, don't do, we do not need to fear him. We can stand like an oak against the winds of Satan's lies that would sway us, against the floods of, of his temptations that would sweep us away, against the leeches of his accusations that would deprive us of his grace. Because we're engaged in a deadly spiritual warfare, we need God's help to stand firm, and we, by God's grace, we can stand firm. Friends, we are at war. Over 100 years ago, the passengers of the Lusitania were warned that a state of war existed and that they could expect attack. But it was very hard to remember this in first-class accommodations. And as a result, because many forgot that they were entering a war zone, they lost their lives. Paul here today has warned us that we are at a state of war. We have powerful enemies who are employing sophisticated tactics to try to defeat us. But we've been given everything we need by God. Through Jesus Christ, we can stand. Let's not forget that we're at war. Let's fill our minds with all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus so that we can stand. Let's remember that we're not alone as we go to war. Let's take up the whole armor of God that we, we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Father, we are sobered by this passage and yet we're strengthened by this passage. Uh, this explains so much in our lives. This explains what so many of us are going through in our lives right now. It explains the doubt. Uh, it explains the intense warfare that we've been feeling. Um, 
We are at war. I thank you that you provided everything that we need for that warfare in Jesus. Lord, today we remind ourselves of the victory that he's won over Satan and his forces. I thank you, Father, that it was no contest. That wasn't even close. Satan was decisively defeated at the cross. I thank you that you continue to work out your purposes, that you are omniscient, you are all-powerful. Satan isn't any of those things. Um, He is uh, facing his sure and certain defeat, but Jesus is currently reigning at your right hand. Thank you for Jesus. But Lord, as we uh, are in this world, we realize that this battle is still continuing. Would you help us to stand? Pray that we would take up your armor, that we would realize we're at war, and that with the strength that Jesus provides, that we would stand against the evil one. Um, So Father, may we dwell in this passage. May we draw close to Christ. May with our lives, we glorify the commander of our army, Jesus Christ, and live for him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.